Hello and welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli and this week I am turning over the interviewer's chair to Chris Beam. Hey, Chris. Hey. Chris is going to be talking with Laura K. Field, a political theorist, senior fellow at the Niskanen Center and scholar in residence at American University. Her latest article and the subject of this interview is The Highbrow Conspiracies of the New Intellectual Right, a sampling from the Trump years. Chris, take it away. Thanks. Thanks, uh, Jenna. We'll, we'll give it a try here. I just want to just give a little bit of background. Uh, I had, when I came up as a political theorist and as in public policy and uh, that kind of world in the 90s, I guess, um, I, you know, there was no doubt to me that the right was more intellectually dynamic and had the better arguments. And even if you didn't agree with them, you had to take them seriously and engage them. And it struck me recently reading some some arguments from very respected uh, sources on the right that that wasn't the case anymore. So you start by setting out this um, this argument of um, Rosenblum and Muirhead. A lot of people are talking, right? And and we had them on the podcast. We all thought very highly of their book, and it's obvious that you do too. So um, can you just start by talking about, you know, placing their argument and and how it kind of uh, you know, your argument follows from theirs. This idea of conspiracism, the idea that it's conspiracy without the theory, that kind of thing. Can you just say a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, happy to. And and I'll also say, you know, I, I sort of, as I'll just give you one little thing about my own background, and we can kind of get into some of this along the way too. But I, I as a young, you know, young person in college, uh, went in as sort of a liberal. Uh, you know, pretty far left. And then I ended up studying with some conservatives who were just brilliant, right? And they, and it just, I sort of, I felt that the power of their arguments and kind of went into that world. And so I was never very politically drawn to a lot of what was going on on the right, but I did always find the arguments extremely compelling and just refreshing and deep. Um, so I kind of agree with your analysis. And then I've become sort of increasingly alienated and, and disaffected from those intellectual circles over the course of, you know, um, the last decade or two. So anyway, just this sort of a corroboration there of what you, you've you been seeing. And then when I read Nancy and Russ's book, I was just really struck by sort of how much it resonated, but in ways that they weren't really talking about, um, because I don't think it was, you know, it wasn't their focus. They weren't, they weren't talking about sort of the intellectual arguments and almost, they were almost sort of abstracting away from some of the more serious things that are happening on the right, the intellectual sort of levels um, or uh, dimensions of the conspiracism that we are seeing. Um, so they're more focused on sort of QAnon, some, you know, birtherism, the, the, that kind of thing that we are seeing. And, and their argument is that this is something quite new. And I was reading this and just noticing all these parallels between sort of the targets of that conspiracism and a lot of the arguments that were the more serious arguments being presented among these right-wing intellectuals, which are more serious, but, or sound more serious. But I think that the troubling thing for me was that when you really dig into it, 
the structure is the same in that it's conspiratorial and false, right? And it's the, a real distortion and it's not grounded in evidence. And some of the targets are, are equally troubling in that they are, are political institutions, intellectual institutions and cultural institutions. And so I gave a talk with Russ in the fall and then I decided to write it all up uh, in this piece for the Niskanen Center. And so, I mean, I'd be happy to talk with you about some of the examples, but I guess the thing that I think is the most interesting connection is how this relates to questions about sort of civil discourse. And, and so the, the trick in, a, I think, a healthy society is to find uh, some balance, right, some place from which we can be very critical of power and authority and really skeptical of what's happening. Well, without just kind of completely abandoning reason and evidence. And so it's a really, it's a really tricky thing because obviously, you know, civil society needs all kinds of voices and challenge and it has to challenge power and, 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 but, but there's sort of a, a tipping point into uh, something really dangerous, I think. And so it's always this process of negotiation. And so they see something really dangerous on the right right now. And, and I tend to agree. And I think it goes all the way up to the people, not all, I mean, I don't want to say not all conservatives, but I mean that, you know, not, I think a lot of conservative intellectuals are not, have not fallen into this, but some of the ones who have gained a lot of traction in the Trump years are really subject to that and are really quite far gone. So the argument, as I got it from Nancy and Russ's book, is that, as you say, there's always been conspiracies in American history, but they were always around something that did indeed happen, right? Kennedy really was assassinated. The Twin Towers really did fall down. Mm-hmm. And the conspiracy was was offering a an explanation for that. It was usually bizarre and not a lot behind it, but there was an explanation. But when you Mm -hmm. talk about Pizzagate or when you talk about the stolen election, the the argument that, you know, there's nothing behind those claims. They're just bald, bizarre assertions. Mm -hmm. And, And there's nothing really to argue back with, right? You can't, yeah, you know, you can't say (laughs) except to just say that's ridiculous. You can't say, no, here's why your argument about, you know, what caused the Twin Towers to fall is wrong or or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder if that's almost, you know, the kind of, you know, a full set Venn diagram, (laughs) right? When you start with an argument that is, or when you start with someone who is, to say the least, not an intellectual, but Mm -hmm. more than that, uh, someone who central, fundamental to his modus operandi was accusing people of what he was doing, right? Yeah. So yeah. calling people liars, calling them immoral, putting you know putting themselves ahead of party, all these things that he did routinely, he would accuse other people of doing. And I wonder if you would agree that that basic uh, framing is what's going on with much of, of the right here, that that they are accusing the left of what the Trumpian right is is doing. Yeah, I mean, so you're I think there's, it often feels like there's just this really deep problem of projection, right? Where, um, and, and with Trump, it feels like calculated, like you gotta uh-huh. be kidding me, right? right. Um, 
but I think on the I think with these intellectuals, it it's more that they are self convinced that these things are happening on the left, and I think it's I think it's much more grounded in conviction, which I think is a I don't quite, I don't pretend to understand how they've, how, how this has happened. I think that there's a lot of my, my sort of intuitive sense. I'm not a scholar of conservatism, but you know, you lately I've been trying to really read more about the history here. And I think some of these things have just been tropes for a long, long time. And so if you kind of take them out of that context of Fox and, and radio stuff that happens on the right, it's scandalously untrue and it, and it's just a complete reduction you know when they like i my the example that i think is maybe the most straightforward is william william barr gave a couple of speeches where he's just talking about radical liberals um the secular elitists who are trying to destroy the cultural foundations of tradition you know of america and he says it's uh it's organized destruction right that the left is just and, and or you're um another scholar of what, uh, of conservative nationalism, Yoram Hazoni talks about sort of Marxist, the Marxist left infiltrating the sort of intellectual elite infiltrating all of the Democratic Party and, and all of the left and, and just these really sort of just, it's just not, I think if you, if you are, if you are at all sort of open minded, even as a conservative and no liberals, right, and have been in academia or like been around Democrats. Um, that's just not true. I mean, this is still a pretty conservative country in a lot of sort of small C, right? A lot of ways. It, mm -hmm. It's just, it's just not true. Like the, the Democratic Party is pretty diverse, um, not just, you know, racially, but, but I think there's, there are a lot of different coalitions in there and it's, and, it, and, and it's just a, it's a, it's a much more complicated, right? And so you can see trends. In well, these, well, so so I think, I mean, I think that a lot of this stuff is is kind of just a, a closedness and a, and a sort of an effect maybe of the siloing of different groups in academia. And, and maybe, you know, maybe there's something true about conservatives have been isolated. You know, I mean, you mentioned some people. Um, I don't know how well known they are in, in the bigger world, but, you know, let's not discount the fact, I mean, that the former attorney general, uh, of the United States of America, his speech at Notre Dame was part and parcel of this, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was the idea that, and then the the, the Flight 93 essay, which is very famous among and, conservatives. Yeah. I mean, th yeah. this is not a a runt, <laughs> runt no. you know, dimension of, of of politics on the right, and and it's uh, it is distinctive. Insofar as it is echoed and and really theorized at this highest level of intellectual thought on the right, I mean, you know, yeah. you read you read the um, that flight ninety three essay, and and at once I'm thinking this is nuts, and on the other hand, I'm thinking this is very well written. <laughs> yeah, or this is just like fascinating and kind of oddly brilliant. I mean, right, right. I mean, I think it's extremely captivating. I would say, and that's true of sort of the whole Claremont crowd is they have this sort of elevated, uh, sophisticated way of, of writing and quoting mm -hmm. all kinds of high-minded stuff. And I mean, I've been sort of adjacent to intellectually, to those circles intellectually for sort of my whole adult life. And I read that stuff and I don't think this is well-written or brilliant. I just, I just think it's 
trash, right? Like I'm just, I'm at a point where I'm just like, I cannot believe the nerve of these pseudo intellectuals for the Claremont group, right? Because I've been close to Mm -hmm. this and I kind of, I think I have some real familiarity with a lot of this material. So I just, there's no part of me that gets hoodwinked by it, right? Uh, I'm not saying you do. I'm just saying, you know, it's a real, and then I think I look at like Patrick Deneen's book and I have that same reaction where I'm, Deneen I'm much more sympathetic to than the Claremont crowd because I, I He's think He's a political wrote, theorist at Notre Dame. At Notre Dame, Conservative yeah. Catholic, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he wrote this book called Why Liberalism Failed, which got a lot of attention because it is well-written and it's kind of, it's obviously sort of a, a provocative piece. Of, of work right and he's taking meant to, be, yeah. mm-hmm. meant to be provocative intentional even just the title and, and Obama read it and thought you know this has something mm-hmm. to, to t- tell a good story or something we need to look at presumably and and so it, it was on his reading list for 2018 and and there's a lot in there that I'm really sympathetic to but I think he, but partly like anything when he's quoting someone who I have a deep knowledge of like Aristotle or like some of the you know or Francis Bacon who and I, I, I just am so offended because he just makes hash of it, right? It's, and I do know some of those writers mm-hmm, really mm-hmm. well, right? And so I, I found that really troubling on sort of a scholarly level, on the scholarly plane, because I, I think it's really disorienting and, and, and really, I think from, if you're coming from the outside, it can be really compelling, but it's not well, you know, there's some parts of it that I just think are really shoddy and unscholarly. So that was troubling to me. If you know what I mean, like on the one hand, it works really well because it's so it's so it's so sophisticated, but um, it's a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think it. I, I think it's also just well, kind of a sham. You could see this, or you could be listening to this, and you don't know who Durkheim is, and you don't know what the Claremont Group is, and you're like, why should I care about this? Mm-hmm. Right? Why is this a thing? Mm-hmm. And it it seems to me that. There's a level in which this is incredibly, I mean, there's lots of ways. I mean, when intellectuals fail to hold themselves to standards of argument and evidence, that's not good for society. Yeah. And that's one way. But the, but the more fundamental way is that the people you cite, their argument is that the other side, the, the people on the left, are so bad, their objectives are so malevolent Mm -hmm. that it justifies doing things that are equally bad, Mm -hmm. right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, you have this, you have to storm the cockpit, right? That's the whole point of Flight 93. That, you know, you would never do that normally, but the situation is so desperate that it justifies, matter of fact, even necessitates that kind of behavior. Yeah. And so I was thinking about, you know, the, the, the whole trope from Vietnam, we had to destroy the village in order to save it. Right. The, the yeah. idea that. Yeah. Or like, so you will force you to be free. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That when you push that way and you view your enemies that way, this kind of defense, aggress, natural response pushes them. And so it's just this yeah. downward spiral and democracy yeah. becomes impossible. Civil yeah. war becomes more and more viable. Yeah. And, and, and if that's true, then, yeah. then that's something that all of us should be deeply concerned about. I think it's really, as with any political discussion, it's really hard to, 
it's really hard to make an argument like this and to look at something that I think really is very extreme and, and somewhat unusual, right? And on one side of the spectrum and and try to be honest and not be and and give an assessment of it and call it some and, and say this is an explosive and dangerous thing that isn't that's asymmetrical, right? That's not happening on the left. And I think that's what we're looking at. But I guess I wanna be I wanna make and I think you're right. I think the fact that they they're they are demonizing their political opponents using inhumane language sometimes, right? Like the Claremont mm-hmm. group sometimes gets really racist and really um like in maybe somewhat subtle ways, but not really. Like it's pretty overt at this point and, and dehumanizing about the left. Yes. Um and so it's really ugly. So they're doing that and and so they're demonizing their political opponent. But I, I think and that's already just dangerous. But I think something that is, is sort of clearly happening, um, and it's not to say the left never demonizes, right, but that's sort of just the scope of it and the nature of it. I think that in general, you can say they are exploiting a kind of ignorance in the, in the population. And it's not to say that sort of your ordinary Republican voter doesn't have agency, but I think that there's something that's happening here where these intellectuals I'm speaking about are very radical in that they are sort of questioning the foundations of American liberal democracy, right? Claremont propends to be sort of supporting a true understanding of the founding, but it's a very narrow and jingoistic and sort of whitewashed history. So they, I don't think that they are credible um, in that respect. But, but then some of these thinkers like Deneen and Barr they're questioning, I mean, Deneen, I think is so, I think his book is so troubling because he's really questioning the validity of sort of modern liberal democracy more generally and, and constitutionalism. It's a very radical critique. And I think, mm-hmm. but, and I don't think that these things are critiques that your average Republican voter shares or would be on board with if the, these authors were more transparent. I think that my sense is that average Republicans, I mean, not that I, I, I don't know how to speak for people or I'm not trying to do that, but my sense is that they, you know, they, they're patriots sure. in the sense that they believe in human rights and liberal democracy and the constitution and, and self-government and, and freedom, right? But I think that some of these intellectuals are really angling for a radical reinvention of the American society. And so I, I don't think they're going to be successful. I don't think it's a very smart, I, I don't, I don't know that there's much um, potential there, but I think that it's sort of exploiting the ambiguities of words like liberalism, right? He and 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 sort of just, but seeking something that's quite radical, and and so I think that's really that's really scary because I think that kind of thing can be successful because rhetoric is really powerful, and a lot of these concepts can be used in frightening ways, um, but I don't think and I don't think it's honest. So not only are they demonizing their opponents, I, I do, and I don't mean to be conspiratorial, right? Like I'm not, I don't think, I think they genuinely have some very deep concerns about the mo- modern society. Mm-hmm. And so they want to upend that. I think it's really irresponsible and frightening because I don't share those values, you know, and I don't share those concerns, you know, to that degree. But um, I do think that they are, their, their critique is really radical. Um, and it goes more back to like a, an old, there's a wonderful book by a woman named Helena Rosenblatt that's called The Lost History of Liberalism. And she sort of delineates the history of liberalism and, and just as a word that's used, uh, especially on the continent in France and Germany through sort of the 16, 17, 1800s. 
And she documents the sort of re reactionary responses to different iterations of liberalism, uh, you know, and sort of resistance to liberal democracy. And, and so this is an old story, but I think that the conservatives right now that we're seeing in these intellectuals are, are more part of that really reactionary old fashioned tradition of being opposed to the modern sort of modern constitutional project. And so, I mean, some of this is just inescapable. It's just these are the problems that we have right now. Yeah. I mean, what I would like to um, to to ask you, some of this is just the challenge that is part of being a scholar, part of being an intellectual, is finding that sweet spot that you mentioned between skepticism and mm -hmm. and doubt and and presenting your arguments and having them assessed all on a on a on a a level of taking people at their word right saying yeah. this is yeah. what you think and i'm going to take you seriously and i'm yeah. going to give you my best understanding for how this is right wrong and different yeah. understanding that all of us are biased all of us are um, you know, merely yeah. human, and yeah. and um, we could be wrong too, right? Yeah. But I wonder how a you know how do how do you just the people listening to this podcast do that when mm -hmm. they haven't you know necessarily gone through way too many years of graduate school? So, I mean, that's a, such a big question, right? And I mean, yeah. I, but I think it's the kind of question that we all sort of answer every day in our lives. We have good relationships and we have bad relationships, right? And I mean, I, you think about who, how do you, when you're with someone who you can trust or like a good friend, usually that involves, that's somebody who you can sort of work things out with, right? You can hash it out. You can sort of tell them what you're honestly thinking and then hear what their view is from their, you know, limited standpoint. And then and they'll challenge you when they think you're wrong and you kind of move forward. Right. And, and, and in my experience, I mean, that that's something that is a really powerful thing, right? Like, or like this goes back to Socrates. I'm a, I mean, I am a political theorist, so right. I have all the, I've got mm -hmm. like, a, but dialectic, right. The process of kind of trying to sort things through and talk things out. So, you know, and that could be big questions and little questions, right. About, well, what should we do about our sons? How rude he is to his mom or whatever. Right. <laughs> And it's, I'm speaking from experience there, right? I've got a five-year-old. Yeah, right. And so, like, how do, you, how do we navigate these things? And I think that, you know, most citizens and most Americans, they deal with this stuff. They deal with it at work. They, they're, and, and so these aren't the big, heady questions. But I think that, that, that we do use sort of reasoning and we do, we do argue things out all the time. So I think we have that material at hand. I think there are much bigger debates right now about sort of, is our society too politicized? Or are, and are we just sort of politicizing everything? And is there way too much political conversation happening? Is this a dangerous thing that's going to sort of be our undoing? And th those are conversations I'm really interested in. And my sense is that no, the answer is is no. But I mean, I understand some of that. I don't think everything in life should be political or that we should sort of constantly be fighting culture wars in our personal lives. But I, my sense is sort of someone who's been sort of on academic campuses most of my adult life is that we are unexperienced. We don't have as a, as a sort of as citizens, we are not very experienced in political conversation and moral conversation. 
it makes us very uncomfortable. And I mm -hmm. think there are all kinds of reasons for that is because democracy, you know, is, has a certain sort of, everybody's got their own opinions. Those are sacred. We shouldn't, it's not about talking. It's about, you know, you hold, you have your beliefs, I have mine. And, and there's a kind of built in hesitancy, right. About hashing that stuff out or trying to figure it out. And I think, um, so my sense is that we, we sort of have an aversion to political engagement and that makes, and that means we don't practice it, right? We don't like it and, and we're bad at it, right? And so it does turn explosive because we're not very well practiced in it. So I don't have any big answers except for, you know, more humanities courses and more, more you know, more funding for education, right? <laughs> um, and, and a little bit more respect, you know, for, for some of these, uh, I guess, for humanities and the social sciences and, and, and sort of so that we can get practice as citizens having these discussions so that then we're, we're, we're better at it when we're, when we're confronted with them. We talk a lot on this podcast about how democracy pushes us in ways that are difficult and even unnatural in some mm -hmm. ways, that that we can talk about um, or we can listen to someone take a point of view that undermines something that we are very committed to, that is, you know, fundamental to our identity and and listen to it with a certain amount of equanimity and just accept the fact that this person has the right to say that. There's mm -hmm. nothing easy or simple or straightforward about that. Mm -hmm. And you can make the same thing. You could say that something very similar about assessing arguments even even arguments from people who you're not talking to, there are standards of of um, assessment, right? Irrespective of and, and maybe even especially when there are arguments that we agree with and that we're uh, receptive to, we still have to think: Does that argument follow? Is that good evidence? What would the alternative position be? Mm -hmm. Again. Mm -hmm. It requires a certain amount of discipline that that doesn't come naturally to us. And I don't know yeah. if, you know, more humanity is the answer. But but I, I the one thing I thought you were going to say, and I think I, I would agree, is that, you know, if we are not willing to start with the idea that the people on the other side are are probably not evil yeah. <laughs> and yeah. probably not out to destroy us. Then, you know, argument, uh, conversation, civility, all those things become more possible. Yeah. And um, yeah, no and, kidding. <laughs> yeah. And and so and obviously, again, not something that that happens, you know, simply or easily. But um, it's something that, you know, all of us, um, especially when things are so yeah. tribal and so, yeah. so much distrust that we, you know, we, we need yeah. to um, push ourselves to do. Yeah. And I don't want to be trite, but I do think there's something to this um, sort of the dichotomy between the online world, right. And then uh, the mm -hmm. world we go out into every day. And I mean, I, I live in probably a purple County right now. Um, and I've spent time in the, I mean, I've lived in Austin and in Memphis. And then I spent a year, a couple of years ago in, in Wichita, Kansas. And I mean, I just, it's the, the reality of these places is just so different, right? From what, 
what you might expect from this sort of rural versus urban and um, heartland versus the coast. Like it's mm-hmm. just, I mean, those caricatures capture something sometimes, but overall it's just not how it is, right? You walk out into any given community and, and you can talk to people and it, it's it's just not nearly so ferocious or partisan, I don't think. I, I really, I mean, that's my experience. And so I think we it's had, just, uh, it's crazy, you know, so we, much of what we see is just so inflated and, and bizarre compared to how neighbors are every day in America at schools, right, and, and all around the country. One very responsible conservative that we had here at Penn State was uh, um, David Frum, and he said that his one suggestion to people was to join something. Not yeah. political, not a partisan, not a party, but sure. just to join something. So he had, you know, so we're, we're confronted with the reality of the the humanness of the people who we disagree with, right? Yeah. And and it is so much harder to hate somebody, yeah. Uh, when that when you're face to face with them, when you see that they're just struggling like everybody else. Anyway, yeah. Well, Laura Field, it's been uh, delightful talking to you. Um, I I really appreciate your your paper and your thoughtful engagement with what is really you know an important um topic that that we're um we're dealing with as a as a democracy right now so uh thanks very much for your time really appreciate it thanks for having me democracy works is produced by the mccourtney institute for democracy at penn state and wpsu central pennsylvania's npr station Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler. And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant, Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.